We would like to welcome our listeners to our podcast series, Who's Universal, which we are hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference, which will take place at the Austerkultur an der Welt in Berlin. My name is Anna Teixeira-Pinto, and I'm co-organizing the White West Conference together with Kader Atia and Ansam Franke. Today, we will be talking to Priyamvada Gopal. Priyamvada Gopal is Professor of Postcolonial Studies at the University of Cambridge. A research deals with South Asian literature, critical race studies, and the politics and cultures of empire and globalization. Our publications include After Iraq, Reframing Postcolonial Studies, a special issue of New Formations co-edited with Neil Lazarus, as well as the Indian-English novel Nation, History and Narration, published with Oxford University Press in 2009. Our most recent book, Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent came out with Verso in 2020. Welcome, Priyan Vadagopal. Perhaps we could start uh, with a more general question about your work. And uh, you said recently in an interview that decolonization is not about guilt or atonement, but about undoing mythologies of empire. So we would like to ask, how do we uh, undo these mythologies of empire. Yeah, I mean, I I made that point because I think that uh, particularly in Britain, uh, though possibly elsewhere as well, discussions around empire immediately take on a very highly emotive tone um, and the discussion becomes quasi-religious in terms of repentance and guilt or refusing repentance and guilt. Um, and I think that my point was simply that decolonization is about trying to understand the formative and the shaping nature of the imperial project uh, on British life, but also European life more broadly, and certainly, of course, post-colonial life. Undoing mythologies is a question of um, developing, I think, a difficult and demanding relationship with history, trying to think um, in challenging terms about the relationship of history and the present. And rather than uh, telling the stories that we often hear about either heroism or villainy, uh, thinking more sharply and in more detail about what empire actually meant and how it has persisted um, in the present or, or rather the ways in which it has an afterlife in the present. We were wondering if you could comment on what recently happened around the Churchill Conference in London, uh, sorry, in Cambridge, but also like uh, connecting that with uh, this recent discussion in France, uh, where the Minister for Higher Education called into an inquiry on the teaching of decolonial studies, uh, which is said to be divisive, it's said to be dividing the French Republic. Yes, I mean, the charges of um, divisiveness um, are common to, I think, both France and Britain. Uh, when you bring up the question of empire um, in anything less than a kind of mythological and uh, fairy tale like way, you are charged with being divisive. Um, and in fact, I would say that, um, and I've always argued that discussing the empire, the British empire in Britain and the French empire in France actually provides common ground. It is the very opposite 
of divisive. Uh, and the reason for, for saying that is that there is pretty much nobody living in contemporary Britain whose life is uh, whose lives are unaffected by the history, legacies, and afterlife of the empire. So it actually curiously provides common ground that if we want to think about in Britain, for instance, if we want to think about how we relate to each other, uh, the identities that we carry with us, how those identities interact, in fact, it is empire that provides the common ground. It provides the common ground between, let us say, me um, as an uh, upper caste Indian woman teaching in Cambridge, a story that is directly linked to empire, and say one of my um, white English colleagues uh, who might have studied um, in, in England and, uh, and uh, done their degree at Cambridge. Now, we are both united in some sense by the project of empire. And thinking about how we relate to each other um, is really one, uh, it, 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 there's a commonality in thinking about how our lives and our interactions are shaped by empire. The Churchill um, episode, it was not a conference, it was a panel discussion uh, on race, empire, and the legacies uh, of Winston Churchill. And it brought together at Churchill College, which is the national memorial uh, to Winston Churchill, it brought together three scholars um, and myself, uh, to think about something that is not often discussed, um, Churchill's extremely well-known um, and very long-held views on uh, race uh, and on uh, the British Empire. And in Britain, uh, Churchill is treated pretty much entirely as only a war hero, uh, someone who almost single-handedly defeated Hitler. And the point in having this discussion was to say, well, that's one side of Churchill. Uh, we also need to talk about his relationship to the empire, which he was you know, very, very committed to, and which was actually very much at the forefront of his thinking when he uh, took on uh, the, the anti-Nazi uh, war efforts. So it seemed to us that um, there was a gap and that this needed to be addressed and that the most appropriate place to address that gap was the National Memorial uh, to Sir Winston. Uh, the backstory to all of this is, of course, Black Lives Matter, uh, which last June and July uh, raised questions about the status of national heroes in Britain. Um, you may recall that the the statue of Churchill in Parliament Square was spray painted, um, was a racist. And uh, one of the, really the goals of this conversation was to unpack what does this mean? Uh, what, you know, was Churchill a racist? What does that mean? How did he think about race? What are the consequences for thinking about race today? In a sense, it's an uh, almost um, unexceptional uh, panel discussion to have. Um, Churchill did not hide his views on race um, or his um, very strongly held sense of um, big differences between different races. 
even before the event happened, we were subject to attack by the tabloids, that is the college, uh, the speakers and myself. Um, and we were charged even before the event happened with character assassination and trashing Church Churchill's reputation. And after the event, there was a similar report in, in the tabloids, in one or two of the, of the most well-known, most influential tabloids, again, charging us uh, with being um, anti-British, with trashing the reputation of the greatest Englishman, um, and calling, of course, also our credentials into question. Um, Policy Exchange, which is a think tank, an education think tank affiliated to the government, produced a report on the event, uh, which basically, again, rehearsed the claim that this was uh, not academically sound, the speakers did not have credentials, um, and this discussion should never have happened, and that such discussions should be prevented from happening ever again. And what that underlined to me was something that um, I suppose I had always known, that, that Churchill exists as... Um, a, a, a kind of a myth in Britain or, or uh, possessed of mythic status. And any attempt to undo that mythic status in favor of thinking about history, uh, that is, will be subject to the most ferocious uh, repression and criticism. I mean, it is quite extraordinary that we have a, a think tank, uh, a supposedly independent think tank, calling for such events to not happen again. Yeah, also, it's very interesting, especially to us and to the topic of this present conference, how the struggle against fascism is used in the post-war to distort and, you know, like obscure the whole question of like anti-colonial struggles and the whole question of like the struggles of the third world, right? How, uh, you know, like this uh, positioning of the imperial, uh, um, of the empires like uh, France, Portugal, Spain, um, sorry, not Spain, uh, but uh, Belgium, uh, on the good side of history uh, is used to obscure, you know, these continuities in between fascism and imperialism. Absolutely. I mean, in Britain, um, you know, even as I speak to you, I am deeply aware um, of how any comment on this, um, any comment I make right now, for instance, uh, will become instant or can become instant tabloid fodder. There is a real investment in the binary of um, Nazism as unambiguously bad and colonialism as somehow um, recuperable, as somehow invested with sufficient good that it is the opposite of fascism. Now, what we know, and my own work on anti-colonialism made that very, very clear, is that anti-colonial thinkers, particularly anti-colonial thinkers from Africa and the Caribbean, did not really accept this binary. Um, they saw race thinking as something that was common to Nazism and to colonialism. And they saw a great many overlaps in the authoritarian operations of the colonial state and the fascist state. It's quite important to say that obviously one has to look at each phenomenon in its historical specificity. This is not a question of conflating colonialism and fascism. They, they unfolded in, in very different ways with different histories and very different consequences. But the point that anti-colonial thinkers 
made, people like uh, uh, Aimé Césaire uh, in the French context and George Padmore in the British context, was that the separation was very convenient, the separation of bad Nazis and good imperialists. And that is something that they repeatedly said needed to be questioned. I think the failure to question that, the failure to think about the continuities, um, as you just said, to think about the overlaps, has manifest consequences for the present, where uh, Britain continues to cling to the story of itself as unambiguously and only heroic, um, as opposed to uh, bad Germany. And some of that rhetoric came back very, very forcefully in 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 popular and public discussions around Brexit, um, that the that the moral right was un, unambiguously on, on the side of Britain. So I think, you know, these are these are mythologies, um, these are historical amnesias, and they uh, continue to have very deep consequences in Britain. One of the, well, I think for me, one of the most pernicious uh, consequences is the belief that somehow Variants of racism in Britain are not as bad as uh, Nazi versions of race. Um, and there is an immediate pushback if you try to think about um, white supremacy as theorized in the Nazi context and white supremacy as theorized in the imperial context. There is no rational reason to, to treat them as completely separate. Um, but the the pushback if you compare uh, elements of Nazism to elements of imperial thinking is instantaneous and ferocious. Well, I guess that to a certain extent, what hinges on uh, this uh, difference um, is exactly how, like, is exactly the, the key word perhaps is liberalism no? um, and the British imperial variant thereof. Um, uh, sort of the, the one that is in particularly linked not only to um, global economic imperial uh, politics, but also to to enlightenment policies. Um, and you see that not only in Britain, uh, but of course, as we mentioned in France, and also in Germany right now, there's a kind of um, unheard of rallying in defense of um, the liberal content of the enlightenment right now, which arrives in the form of an of a, often one has the feeling that the, the racial content of that defense is literally unreadable to those who express it. And I'd like to maybe just that you describe this from your point of view. You know, one thing I will say about uh, the term the Enlightenment, I mean, we often use it as, as standing in uh, for kind of European thought. Um, one of the points I make in the introduction to my book, Insurgent Empire, is this, that we need to think about the Enlightenment itself as a conflicted, complex, and contradictory legacy. And one of the ways in which I think uh, the Enlightenment as an abstraction has taken on uh, again, in itself a kind of mythic status that is not especially well historicized, is in tying it quite simply to liberal ideas. One of the most interesting pieces of work um, that um, I have read uh, is uh, Susan Buck Morris's short but important book, Hegel and Haiti. 
And one of the points that she makes in there is not that we need to reject the Enlightenment as a whole, or that we need to reject Europe as a whole, but that we need to draw out forgotten lines of influence. And this ties up to your question about the, the evacuation of race uh, from thinking about the Enlightenment. I mean, manifestly, the Enlightenment threw up uh, engagements with race. It threw up racist engagements with race. Um, it it uh, was, in many ways, um, a, a, a site for the, the construction of whiteness. But the important thing is this, that in Hegel's master-slave dialectic, for instance, right, which is a kind of classic of the Enlightenment. One of the questions that didn't get asked or was insufficiently asked is where does this, the figure of the slave coming from? Um, why is Hegel at this moment, at that particular moment in time, writing uh, as he was, why was he thinking about slavery? And, and, and But Morris makes a, a complex argument around the fact that in his daily reading of the news, Hegel was profoundly, could not but have been profoundly aware of the Haitian Revolution, uh, which is the uprising uh, uh, against French imperialism of uh, uh, slaves and former slaves. The point I'm making is this, and then this is her point as well, that there is a line of influence there that is written out and which enables liberalism. Liberalism's understanding of the white man, the educated or elite white man, as the prime mover of history, intellectual as well as political history. But if we start to think about Hegel's engagement with Haiti, which is written out of that story, then we are thinking about reverse influence uh, or a process that I've described um, in a slightly different context as reverse tutelage. Uh, Europe learning from the resistance of uh, the empire, of the, of the colonized and the enslaved. And I think that, that you can see that in Britain as well. The story of abolition in Britain is repeatedly presented as one of liberal benevolence, um, whereby uh, you know, the white conscience uh, decides that what, what has been done in its name is untenable and therefore must be stopped. But we know that the, the story of abolition was deeply complex and that slave rebellions Again, written out of the story, that kind of racialized dimension of resistance has been written out of the story. We know that slave rebellions had a role to play in the eventual abolition uh, of the slave trade and then subsequently, you know, 30 odd years later, slavery itself. And I think there's something very problematic about the ways in which liberalism, uh, European liberalism, has written out the agency of the enslaved and the colonized, or, or really, which then also translates to the agency of the non-white and the non-European. Um, once you take agency into account, once you start to see lines of influence running in multiple direction, then some of the pretensions and mythologies of liberalism in terms of one directional benevolence are no longer possible. One thing that I was uh, that I would be curious about, though it's not part of your book, I guess it's a bit like off topic, uh, but um, uh, is the question of the Somerset versus Stewart court decision in 1772, 
and uh, you know, like its impact uh, on the subsequent war for independence of the United States, because this feels to me to be one of these grounding mythologies of empire, like the way the United States, uh, you know, like claims for itself its this banner of freedom and imperialism, and no one ever, uh, you know, like. Uh, weighed into this discussion uh, from the perspective like of a country that was founded to protect the institution of slavery, to guarantee and maintain the institution of slavery, uh, and uh, a war of independence in which actually enslaved or freed uh, former enslaved people fought for the British Empire. Yes, and I know. I mean, this speaks to one of the kind of complexities uh, of history. Uh, you know, it 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 is not a, a simple set of binaries uh, where we can think about who you know unambiguous anti-colonialism and then um, uh, you know equally homogeneous colonialism. Part of what I I did in in my book is to talk about dissenters at the heart of the empire, people who who, who pushed at the imperial project. Um, there has been some very interesting recent work, again, in the American context about the elision of the two constitutive historical elements of the American state, uh, slavery on the one hand, and of course, anti-slavery, uh, but also, of course, the um, and there's this perhaps an even bigger silence around this, is the dispossession, the genocidal dispossession of native peoples. And what we have seen in relation to the United States um, in the last four to five years in particular uh, is the return, uh, the ferocious return um, of that kind of primary um, elision, the, the imposition of uh, the liberal white state um, at the expense of the enslaved and the dispossessed. But those lines are not clear because, uh, you know, today considerations of decolonization in the, in the US context uh, might have to take on board that uh, although the enslaved and the dispossessed are both at the receiving end of structural violence in the constitution of the United States, that at times they were played against each other. Uh, for instance. Um, so part of this is what I meant by a demanding engagement with history. History doesn't offer us kind of clean lines uh, of, of good and bad, that we actually have to engage with the with the complexities um, of, of our historical role uh, in colonialism and anti-colonialism. And those don't break down on, on simple racial lines either. Perhaps. Um... I would like to return to the point that we've been maybe too briefly visiting earlier, which is like the transition from um, anti-colonial movements of the early 20th century and uh, particularly um, in, the, in the 1930s when this uh, continuity thesis becomes a core, uh, especially around uh, Mussolini's attack on Abyssinia, um, where for basically... Um, the, the colonized the Second World War starts with uh, with with this attack with the last uh, full scale colonial war um, waged from a European power um, on African territory, um, and somehow the the absolute break of the post war order with with this kind of continuity on a. Um, such that somehow you feel that the, the, the post-war order and of course overshadowed by the bloc confrontation um, made it almost illegible um, what the previous century 
been based on. And since this is somehow in your discussion of Patmore and Césaire and others uh, and CLR James and others um, is, is, is so implicitly very strong in your book, I'd like you just to hear about this from this perspective of what's happening right now in the, in, in the reshaping of or in the struggles around the order of, uh, um, of Britain in, in the, and its conception of global order. So um, if I if I get you correctly, you're asking about the consequences of the kind of 1930s and the immediate post-war order uh, in relation to how Britain thinks about itself and the global order today? Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, look, Britain is a country that lost its empire, but never came to terms with that loss. And in a sense, the refusal to engage with Churchill and the refusal to engage with what he absolutely made very clear he would not do. Uh, he used the trenchant phrase, the liquidation of the British Empire, and said he was not, you know, he was not the prime minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the of the British Empire. I think that that failure to actually understand that the empire was liquidated, and it was liquidated without really asking Britain for permission. Um, Britain's post-war mythology has involved, on the one hand, the Allied victory, uh, in which the Allies are quite frequently written out in, in favor of a kind of heroic and isolated Britain. Um, so there's a kind of simple-minded mythology of, of the uh, victory over uh, Nazi Germany. And then there is an equally simple-minded story about how the empire was overnight and because of liberal benevolence transformed into the Commonwealth, right? So seamlessly Asian and African colonies overnight were given the status of members of the Commonwealth. And this is part of a very deeply, not British, but a very deeply English story of change, whereby change must not be violent. It must not involve resistance. It must be through a series of gradual benevolent uh, initiatives from above. Now you see Britain isolated in ways that could have been predicted. Um, isolated from Europe because it has, it has clung to the sense of being the winner in the war. Uh, uh, you know, to the extent that, that Germany is a, a metonym for Europe in many ways in, in Britain. Uh, so that sense of, you know, British morality prevailing over uh, European wickedness, that mythology is there. And then there is the idea that there is a vast Commonwealth ready to rush to Brit Britain's aid and help Britain lead the new world order, post-Brexit world order. Neither of these things pertain. Uh, you know, Britain is now a deeply isolated island uh, in many ways. Uh, the Commonwealth is busy uh, with its own 
you know, quite now quite separate history of 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 becoming part of the capitalist world order with becoming part with you know with with the uh, the neoliberal consensus having generated a whole different set of politics around Britain, Russia, uh, China, South Africa, and so on. The BRICS, uh, India, of course, BRICS. The BRICS are busy doing their own thing. Um, and there is then, of course, the, the third flank of the mythology, which is the special relationship with the United States, which also uh, there is very little evidence that that is going to amount to very much um, at all. Um, and certainly not uh, that it will amount to, to Britain's benefit. So one of the lethal consequences of, of the kind of three intersecting mythologies is that they have all fed into uh, British isolation, or Britain at best being a cog in the unfolding of the new, you know, the neoliberal world order in the in the twenty first century as it goes on. And of course, the story now, as we proceed into the into the middle years of this century, will be the story of what happens with the gigantic, uh, you know, kind of economic rising economic powers, so called, uh, you know, particularly of course China and India. Um, and and what their status is going to be in relation to um, the, the global south and and beyond. And Britain actually has has almost no role uh, in in the story. There is there is no world order in which Britain, uh, other than its seat at the United Nations, which it continues to hold on to, it has no uh, particularly significant role in whatever world order we see emerge um, into in the mid years of this century. How do you see the role of the United States? That's a very difficult one uh, to call. Um, I mean, I'm not a United States specialist. Um, it is manifestly the case, of course, that um, in the economic uh, battle against China, uh, it is on the losing side. Uh, it is on the losing side in terms of having also lost its manufacturing base, having also uh, also being in, in great debt. Uh, it is not imaginable that the U.S. will be in the driving seat at the end of this century in the way that it was at the uh, end of the last century. As I said, I think the, uh, and this is something I've, I've said in a slightly different context, it is time that the world as a whole stops only thinking about Europe and the United States and pays greater attention to what is happening in India and China, because what those gargantuan nation states do or don't do in the coming decades is going to be uh, a world shaping. And of course, we know that both India and China have um, strong economic interests in Africa. And, and some people have talked about this in terms of the new scramble for Africa. Um, and that, you know, in a sense, not just capitalist uh, uh, agency, but colonial agency has moved from West uh, to the global south and, and not watching uh, Brazil, China and uh, India, all three of which have been turning in the direction of authoritarianism, China, of course, uh, for, for much longer. This is going to be in consequent, uh, going to be consequential in ways that um, will be, it will be very bad if we don't pay attention to what is happening there. Perhaps uh, we could uh, discuss uh, in greater detail also like this, um, you know, like 
forgotten threads, like uh, I'm thinking about George Padmore, Mrs. Arcel James, and uh, how they understood the relation of like racial capitalism to fascism, and also like how they understood that relation in in terms of the challenges that it poses to the left, as in the white European left, uh, that uh, um, bases its claims for solidarity uh, on the question of class alone. And uh, I find this like uh, pertinent because now we are really living through a moment in which I feel that this calls for solidarity are actually attempts to ensure white futurity and to recenter whiteness and to again uh, marginalize and displace the question uh, of decolonization. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the great uh, use of the work of uh, people like Padmore James, uh, uh, you know, and and of course uh, Césaire among others, was to call attention uh, in the 1930s itself, but moving on very uh, strongly into the 40s and and the immediate post-war uh, future to to make clear that you can't think about capitalism without, for instance, thinking about race and colonialism. And, and conversely, you can't think about colonialism uh, simply as a cultural or a racial construct, but colonialism as, as profoundly tied up uh, uh, to capitalism. And both tendencies we have seen uh, in, in one sense or the other manifest uh, on the left, particularly the, I think the academic left more broadly, is the tendency to continue to see class without seeing other vectors of oppression. Uh, and the tendency to think about colonialism as mainly cultural and not think about its centrality as racial capitalism. Colonialism is racial capitalism. It doesn't make any sense outside of that um, understanding of expropriation, oppression, and dispossession on racial lines. It has been extremely depressing to see the... Um, what is the, the word, the phrase rather, the white working classes uh, come back into left discourse uh, with a vengeance. Um, we've had reason to, to uh, discuss it in Britain in the last few days because of the recent government-backed uh, report, which said that there was no racism, uh, really, there was no institutionalized racism, and that we needed to think um, about, for instance, the white working classes. The point, of course, is that race and class operate in in ways that I, I know I don't need to tell you in, in kind of intersecting uh, ways that, that are, they're used uh, quite crudely still to divide and rule. Um, and there is a general illiteracy around the operations of both class and race. And this makes divide and rule much easier. So, for instance, if you wanted to point out that, yes, there are a great many working class people who are dispossessed, who happen to be white, that that is different from saying that there is a white working class disenfranchisement. They're two completely different things. They can be working class people who are disenfranchised in a sense, despite being white. And then there are people who are dispossessed by virtue of class, but also by virtue of race. None of this is actually terribly complex to understand. Clearly, most people in a capitalist world order, 90% of the globe's population is at the sharp end of capitalism across racial boundaries, white, brown, black, whatever. 
But then race also has its own operations, which means that we are still in, in a world order where the global proletariat is largely not white, is largely situated across Asia, the Caribbean, Latin America, and Africa. So what we actually really need to be doing, and I think that in many ways, um, much, not all, but, but sections of the left have failed to do that in jumping onto the bandwagon, either of, of saying, no, no, class above everything else, or saying, we need to talk about the disenfranchised white working classes when talking, for instance, about Trump, Trump's four-year reign um, and or Brexit. Um, so the Labour Party in Britain is very happy uh, to embrace the idea of the white working classes as the as the category that they need to target uh, in order to return to power. And as I said, none of this is very complex and it is very hard to understand why we can't have a discussion that talks about capitalism, capitalist dispossession and, and exploitation, that talks about class, but also understands that race performs a particular function and, and racial di dividing lines are actually really important to the ways in which capitalism uh, divides. I mean, we know that race is a construct that in a sense is coterminous with the emergence of capitalism and that capitalism has always used race in order to divide uh, you know, the, the people who might be at its sharp end. And I think what is depressing in a sense is to see a very old dynamic to which people like James and Pat Moore repeatedly called attention. Uh, they call attention to it in a, in a wider sense and they called attention to it when speaking uh, to communist internationalism, when, when participating in debates about communist internationalism. These, these points have been made very forcefully, very lucidly, very sharply by them and by others. And yet here we are in uh, you know, 2019, 2020, still uh, either pretending race and class can be you know, completely separated or, or, or talking about the white working classes in ways that make absolutely no sense. How do you see this in relation to, um, because to me, one of the crucial problems is how it, race always gets narrated as a lack. So basically it's like a lack of access to resources, uh, you know, like a, a lack of inclusivity. Uh, whereas what could see it as an excess, an excess of like state violence, an excess of like, uh, um, you know, like violence uh, and vulnerability. Uh, state terror, etc. Uh, but this would flip the conversation and would uh, mean that one would have to see or think of white supremacy a bit like, as Charles Mills says, like as a political system, not only the backdrop against which other political systems play out, like social democracy or fascism. And whether you see that uh, it would be important to precisely like shift the terms of this this debate yes i mean look one one big problem um is when you talk about white supremacy um there is an immediate understanding that that means people in ku klux klan robes burning crosses on people's lawns it, it is it is treated as though it was the sh it was the extreme end of being white uh, but in fact, as you've just said, um, it is a system and it is entangled with the with capitalism. Uh, capitalism and white supremacy are coterminous 
and white supremacy creates race um, and, and creates racial divisions. So absolutely thinking about things in structural terms um, is utterly central. And what thinking about things in structural terms also means is this, that we need to think about the ways in, white, ways in which white supremacy, and, and David Rediger's work is, is really important here, actually creates whiteness and also disadvantages many people who are racialized as white. Uh, you know, it's not just that white supremacy uh, is a system which then um, disempowers those who are marked as, as these absences, those who are marked as racial minorities or racial gaps, uh, but that actually those who are racialized as white are also, in a sense, trapped in a, in, a, in a system or in a racialized system in much the way that, you know, heterosexual masculinity also entraps men who are, who mark themselves as heterosexual um, and cis male. So the point I think, and this, this is going to be hard to, to get across, I think in a, in a general sense that white supremacy is a system. It is entangled with, um, with the economic system um, and that it actually also disadvantages those who are racialized, racialized as white, not because they are white, but because they are then part of a system which operates on uh, on these racialized categories and racialized uh, assumptions, and which you know frequently take attention away uh, from the ways in which exploitation is really happening. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just wondering if we can, if we return uh, one more time to the. To the figures of the 30s, etc., like and this question of race and class within the history of, of the revolutionary left, no, and because also uh, they each each one of them, Césaire, Petmore, um, C.L.R. James, etc., they they had their very distinct relationship to the party, sometimes closer, sometimes more conflicted, and it would be perhaps just. Uh, uh, good for for our discussion if you if you shared your knowledge of this process of of the fate of the revolutionary left in relation to the anti-colonial movement in the in the 30s and what remained of that then in the in the in the period of decolonization of independence um, of the late 50s uh, early 60s this is a particularly tough question to answer because in a, in a sense partly because of course the revolutionary left as we might see it today is is itself such a um such a global and such a diverse um entity i'm i'm going to take it that your question pertains to the revolutionary left in in europe or am i am i reading you wrong yeah i mean more like you know the relationship of patmore to 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 moscow no and when did this break apart what did it mean for for the movements in the fifties, um, or or CLI James and and his in uh, his investment, his his more Trotskyite investment in world revolution, and what did that mean then for for uh, for independence movements um, after the defeat of fascism? No, because there's such a profound break, and at the same time, that break itself seems to secure certain continuities. And I just. Um, wanted to take the the advantage of your presence to dive a little bit deeper into the details of how that how that continuity slash um, rupture um, can be understood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
See, both James and Pat Moore break um, in in the 1930s. Uh, uh, by the end of the 1930s, they break from Moscow um, because of, certainly uh, in Pat Moore's case, the refusal to understand the specificities um, of race and also the specificities of the colonial question. And... Uh, also, and, and in, in James's case, of course, um, also the, the turn to Trotskyism, uh, the turn to Trotsky away from Stalin. I think the important point, and of course, both of them um, are explicit about distancing themselves from the party's vacillation on the on the colonial question right so because the party vacillates in the 1930s almost overnight from being anti-colonial to actually then taking the stance that that we discussed um a, a little while back on saying actually you know what the democratic imperialists are okay the real fight um is against fascism and i think that that's something uh, tied up to particularly in pat Moore's case tied up to the question of saying no, we cannot separate the question of imperialism from the question of fascism, even as we hold them, uh, the, you know, even as we consider each phenomena in its specificity. So I think that the, the big break really, um, and if you mark how they then go on to theorize uh, revolution, the big break is over the question of the colonies and the refusal to accept that there is something called democratic imperialism, which we can therefore say is objectively uh, better uh, uh, than, uh, than fascism. And if you look at their writings, particularly their public writings in Britain into the 1940s, through the war, into the immediate post-war era, there is really um, an ongoing concern with saying this particular binary, this binary where the, the colonies can be shelved at the expense of a European war, uh, that, cannot, that cannot hold, that that is untenable. What happens then in the post-colonial uh, era, um, and, this is a, and this is why I said it's a, it's a slightly different story, is the marginalizing of the left, certainly of communism, uh, but also of socialism in the post-colonial project because who wins out um, in in the 1950s and 1960s um, it is the nationalists and it is the mainstream nationalists maybe liberal maybe less liberal but it is not uh, the left in in uh, in most cases across Asia uh, and Africa so the consequences in the in the post-colonial age uh, are unthinkable without then thinking about the the war of the blocks. Um, and here, the colonial question ends up being formulated in Bandung as it, it then kind of transforms into the non-aligned movement. Some countries retain a, a closer connection to Moscow, closer or less close connection to Moscow. Others, India, of course, most famously deems itself uh, non-aligned, even while maintaining uh, a, a fairly close line of communication with Moscow in, in Nehru's uh, period. The post-colonial era has to be thought about then as, as a version of a different fight, which is the fight within uh, uh, former colonies 
for ascendancy, for political ascendancy between communists and socialists on one hand and between liberal uh, uh, nationalists uh, on the other. And, and uh, you know, this, this varies, uh, but by and large in the war uh, uh, of, of ascendancy or in, in the war of, uh, I guess, positions, uh, to use a Gramscian term, uh, the nationalists went out. And the winning out of nationalism in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the big picture uh, has had very important consequences for the present day. So when I, when I talk about um, uh, Brazil uh, and India, uh, China differently, uh, that story is then the story of... Um, of the rise of nationalism. And, and therefore, um, today we are looking down at the resurgence of, of what we would recognize as students of the 1930s, that we would recognize as the resurgence of fascist tendencies, this time not tied up with colonialism, but this time bound up with nationalism. Also, I was wondering if we could go into this transition from colonialism to neocolonialism, right? Neocolonialism being like a form of domination that is not uh, based or, or directly linked to territorial uh, occupation. And uh, how the fact that now what you have are these global struggles that play out locally uh, really complicates the situation. Also because, uh, you know, like you cannot really like uh, organize the struggle in terms of a struggle for a nation state or, you know, like or around this, uh, you know, nation building uh, enterprise. You know, this is uh, this is an incredibly difficult question as well. I mean, certainly as as an Indian watching nationalism play itself out heading very, very rapidly towards the lethal end game and with the manifest emergence of tendencies that we can even politely only describe as proto-fascist, my immediate tendency is to say, yes, you know, that the nation is not the site of struggle. But I think we also can't be too blithe about that because what we, we we still have a situation where let us say in Palestine or in relation in relation to indigenous communities or in relation to Kashmir, the nation is still the, the category of mobilizing against other forms of domination and settler colonialism and neocolonialism. The nation has not lost for everybody across contexts, it has not uniformly lost its validity. Um, in a sense, it is a luxury. Uh, it's a strange luxury uh, for, for you and me to talk about the, the supersession of the nation state. And, and I certainly would very gladly uh, talk about my deep reservations uh, about, about what has unfolded in the post-colonial era in terms of um, ethno-nationalisms. That said, I, 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 I don't think we are in a situation where there is a single axis of organizing. Um, so for instance, if I think about indigenous communities um, in India, in Australia, in North America, self-determination, which is something I talked about in, in relation to the 1930s and 1940s, remains a very powerfully uh, resonant notion 
So one question we can ask is, can we have self-determination without the nation state? And I don't entirely know what the answer to that is. Um, we can recognize the manifest poison chalice that the nation state has been. Uh, we can recognize that the nation state cannot provide the basis for international or global solidarities. But we also have to recognize that there are those who are even further behind. Uh, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, when I say behind, I mean they, that that they don't have the luxury of a self-determined nation state. And so what forms do those struggles against old and new colonial powers, what forms should they take? What is the status of the nation state in relation to those struggles? And what, what today is self-determination? And I think this is important because the question of self-determination, let us say of indigenous communities is not separate from some of the goals of ecological and anti-capitalist movements, uh, the question of land, the question of resources, the question of ecology, the question of climate, uh, the question of access to water, uh, you know, fresh air, food. These are all, I think, tied up in interesting ways with self-determination. So I, I guess for me, my answer to your um, question here is in the form of a problem. What, what do sovereignty and self-determination mean today? Um, and what is their relationship to the wider project of decolonization? And I, I'm not sure that there are simple answers and I'm not sure that the answers would be, you know, would not vary quite dramatically across contexts. I wanted to ask you about like one of the topics that you bring out in your book, which is about like Marcus Garvey and the way CLR James in particular criticizes Marcus Garvey pan-Africanism, which uh, you said that he credits with creating a feeling of international solidarity among Africans and also like the African diaspora, uh, yet misdirects. Uh, and uh, I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, like uh, unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, I think it ties to what we were just talking about, um, which is our reservations or critical questions around uh, nation, but specifically also around ethno-nationalism um, and the ways in which race as a concept takes hold in anti-colonial movements, right? So, so there is organizing around racial categories. There is organizing around blackness, um, around being um, uh, you, what, what, you know, whatever racial axis you're organizing uh, might happen around being indigenous, around being um, Native American. It's a thorny question because, of course, those who are dispossessed by virtue of race those who are dispossessed in the emergence of racial capitalism and colonialism have the right, and it's a completely reasonable right to organize around race, around deeply felt ethnic or even uh, religious identities, because there's a way in which you know, pan-Africanism is a parallel to, to you know, pan-Islamism. People like James Bork, again, completely in completely understandable ways at reifying 
what are colonial, what they see as colonial categories of race, as of, of actually underscoring, uh, let us say, blackness at the expense of international solidarity. So their hostility to someone like Gavi is, is on the one hand, on the question of, of reifying and consolidating what they see as reactionary uh, racial identities, but it is also um, around the fact that Gavi espoused black capitalism uh, and uh, uh, you know espoused the black ownership of industry or or corporations, and they saw that as um, and, and you know to, to go back to the question that was posed earlier that this is a fundamental fault line in anti-colonialism between liberal capitalist nationalism, which wins the day in in my view, and between the left and revolutionary uh, anti-colonialism. I suppose it we are left with this question of saying um, yes. When it comes to somebody like Gavi, when it comes to black internationalism, um, or you know, or pan uh, pan African organizing, there are very very solid, understandable reasons for one for why one might talk about a global black identity. And in fact, you know, Ngugi Wa Thiongo, who is a Marxist, uh, who is writing decolonizing the mind as a Marxist, is quite explicit himself about the fact that although they have very different historical experiences, they also share, uh, you know, Africans in Africa and African-Americans share a particular relationship to history that does make for a natural uh, and understandable solidarity um, uh, in, 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 in terms of, of blackness. Um, he manages to, to say we can do this without reifying blackness as a category. So I suppose that is the key question. I mean, people like Padmore and James, uh, you know, recognize Garvey's work in creating Pan-African solidarity, but they are deeply and again, equally reasonably concerned about the investment in capitalism, as well as the investment in uh, uh, what they see as retrograde uh, racial identities. And this is precisely where in some ways we still are. How How do you and this is what I was posing in relation to self-determination. Can you have self-determination uh, that doesn't take place around a particular racial, religious, um, or identitarian axis? Um, and what form would self-determination take? So I think that that breach between you know Garveyites on the one hand and Black Marxists on the other, I think there are there are unresolved questions, and they are still very much there on the table for us to think about. I mean, perhaps, perhaps um, we could we could rehearse or engage a little bit with sort of the the tropes that um, that we see that we see sort of on the let's say tabloid level or also political uh, you know uh, strategic level um, emerging in 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 Western Europe and uh, around sort of the this what we mentioned earlier the sort of this, the denial or disavowal of structural racism of anyone like you experienced yourself now calling calling out these structures alone will be funneled into a kind of oh she's calling for a race war kind of uh thing and i'm i'm just wondering you know like yesterday we had an article here in the german press where a conservative voice is kind of you know once again it's kind of funneled through a sort of enlightenment defense um which basically means to consolidate an imperial version of modernity slash 
one that doesn't acknowledge its own structural implication with what with white supremacy um that you see sort of you know in a, in a slogan that is sort of totally enraging i think uh, in a major newspaper here not tabloid level but sort of you know uh, of the uh, intellectually uh, leading uh, side of of the publishing business um saying like something like the global south has yet to prove that they have to offer a viable alternative to enlightenment based nationalism yeah i mean look uh, you'll recall when we were talking about the enlightenment earlier i said that one of the problems with the way in which we throw around the enlightenment and i think the problem is as strong in sections of scholarly and academic um thinking that we have been too eager to give europe enlightenment to say oh yeah yeah okay you came up with the enlightenment and so so for instance some varieties of what calls itself decolonial thought will say we reject the enlightenment um we're going to look at you know um let us say uh indian uh uh ancient indian texts so we're going to look at kind of um uh, african uh theories of science all that's fine i mean all, all that you know needs to be done but the reason i stress the importance of thinking about the non-european contribution to europe the non-european contribution to the enlightenment which as in the case of hegel actually took the form of reading resistance and theorizing it but theorizing it as though there weren't real historical agents doing the resisting i think one and it is the only way and i think the academy has by and large shied away from doing this there are there are small pockets of work the answer to this german politicians question is to say actually actually the enlightenment didn't come from nowhere it didn't just emerge uh that knowledge is a constant process of flows and when europe is out in the world as it is in the period of the enlightenment how could the world not be shaping the enlightenment in fact you one could even say the enlightenment you know would not have been possible without europe going into africa asia the caribbean and beyond so but we have not really wanted to answer that question we have been quite happy to say the you know europe whatever europe means white europe whatever whiteness means came up with the enlightenment one evening scribbling on the back of an envelope with the doors shut why have why have we not done the work which actually looks at the ways in which knowledges are mutually constitutive not you know that that europe could not have had science without work having been done across cultures in mathematics in chemistry in astronomy <clears throat> it's you know this idea of a kind of very hermetically sealed enlightenment unfortunately is espoused by both left and right and what we have not done is to pay sufficient attention to linkages I guess this is a rhetorical question, but um, I'm wondering to what extent is the Enlightenment a category that can be uh, recovered, or you know, in in to what extent is it redeemable? Because of course, one could also see it as like a, 
something that is based on like a differential relation, right? That uh, basically in order for you to have the enlightenment, which is an aspirational category, uh, you need to uh, also posit that there are those that do not have access, you know, they don't have access to the universal, right? Because they uh, lack this, uh, you know, like they, they suffer from conceptual uh, inadequacies. And so they remain perched on the threshold to history, but they they just cannot answer, enter because, uh, you know, like their culture doesn't allow them to enter. Uh, and, and Egel is really like... Um, I mean, he's really a villain in the story, right? Because, uh, you know, Egel's relation to Africa in particular uh, is uh, really, uh, to my mind, difficult to redeem. Mm -hmm. I think the question isn't one of redemption. Um, and this takes us back to the point we were discussing at the beginning of this conversation about mythologies. I think I think I would completely agree with you that the Enlightenment's narration of itself and its self-constitution and its presenting of itself as, you know, light and universality as opposed to particularity and darkness are uh, manifestly untenable. My point was perhaps slightly different, which is to say, we would wish to look at ideas, and I would include the universal, I would include universal rights, let us say, to freedom from hunger or to freedom from, uh, you know, oppression on the basis of gender or sexuality or race, which are ideas that the it is claimed today that these, these come to us from the Enlightenment. I think the point is this, that the theorizing of the universal, just like the theorizing of the human, has occurred at multiple sites, both spatially and in temporal terms. And what I want to caution against is agreeing that, you know, ideas, let us say, for instance, around specific rights that all human beings, as well as non-sentient beings, uh, might, might have, that these are ideas that came up in Europe. What I'm saying is that, that the making of what we call the Enlightenment, which is a diverse body of ideas, a diverse and often conflicting and, and co internally contradictory set of ideas, because you can't be theorizing universal man and, and saying, well, you know, Africa is backward at the, you know, at the same time. There is a, there's a kind of an incoherence there. And this is why I, I find Buck Morris's work on Hegel really interesting because what she says is rather than discard the project of universal history can we reconstitute it on a truly universal basis and reconstitution is different from redemption it is actually saying to europe you didn't come up with all these ideas on your own uh you didn't you know you didn't you didn't turn up one fine day and become universal and enlightened that actually, when we think about the globe outside the frame of colonialism, you know, 1492 is very, very recent. The world was interacting well before 1492. You know, we know there was trade uh, across, let us say, uh, you know, present days Indian subcontinent or South Asia and the uh, eastern coast of Africa. We know that there was engagement across cultures that was not mediated by the West. The West, of course, is a, is a geopolitical category. 
And I think that part of the work of decolonization is to actually make for to to look at 1492 as the seismic event that it was, but to also understand that universal history begins well before 1492, and that there is universality that is not mediated by Europe, of which Europe is a constituent part, but of which Europe is not the progenitor. And picking up from what I was just saying, I think, I think that decolonization, which is a term that I think is currently being used much more than it is understood, has to get us to think about what Edward Said calls overlapping and intertwined histories. And that's the point I was making about, you know, what happens before 1492, as much as what happens after 1492. And decolonization, I am slightly concerned that our definitions of decolonization are now taking the form of, if you like, parallel en enlightenments, parallel sets of knowledge. So Europe's got its set of ideas, um, you know, Latin America has its sets of ideas, India has its sets of ideas, and everybody's equally valid. There is a there is a kind of recuperation of decolonization into the framework of liberal representation. And I think this is dangerous. I say this because partly because I've seen how decolonization is a term that has been embraced by the Hindu right um, in India, for instance. Um, and I, I I, it is very easily appropriated in, in just the ways that James and others were concerned about in relation to Gavi. It is very easily picked up by retrograde uh, forces in, in different uh, societies. But I think it's also lazy. I think it is lazy not to look at how the totality of human knowledge is a series of flows, is a series of interlinked endeavors. Um, and that actually the whole idea of a European enlightenment itself is bonkers because there can't be such a thing. There cannot be such a thing. There are, you know, uh, what, 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 for instance, today the, the Hindu right will call Indian knowledge is not Indian in any sense other than, you know, the, the nation state can lay claim to it. Um, it has its relationship with Arabia. It has its relationship with Africa. It has its relationships across uh, cultures. So for me, the very idea of having kind of discrete, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of multiple knowledges, which are parallel, but equal, I think that that is something that is quite concerning. And I don't think that in the end of the day, it will do what it hopes to do in relation to the European Enlightenment, because all it's doing is agreeing with the idea of boundaries of national or cultural or racial boundaries. Um, I think what is before us when it comes to decolonization is thinking very hard, um, both about the colonial project, but also about, uh, you know, the ways in which old tyrannies uh, in formerly colonial uh, colonized contexts have also resurfaced uh, in the present day. And to think about decolonization, not just as something for Europeans to do or for um, Africans to do, but again, as something that we all have to actually do because it's a difficult and demanding project. Um, but it is the only way, in a sense, to, uh, to move forward and, and leave the era of colonialism behind. Uh, thank you for that. It was uh, very important. And thanks for the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you for your questions.